from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall, Sirius XM Business Radio Studios, looking out onto the famed Locust Walk here at the University of Pennsylvania on a balmy, overcast July, Wednesday morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Adi straight away, Shane to my right, Eric to my left. We're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Please give us a call. That phone number, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us, businessradio at com. You can also, we also tweet. I tweeted a bunch yesterday about our upcoming guests. Um, and so at W Moneyball. W Moneyball, yep. At W Moneyball on Twitter, up there, we follow all of our guests. It's a great way to stay on top of the sports analytics world. And who are our guests today, Kate? We have a couple of fantastic guests. We're going to do them in a little bit different order than usual. Up in the first hour in the tennis world, keeping us up to speed on all kinds of tennessee things. Paul Anacone, longtime tennis player in the doubles world, and coach Pete Sampras, one of his. Students, you might have heard of that guy. I'm extremely excited. I'm, I'm extremely excited to have Paul on. He was actually a very accomplished singles player as well. We uh, number twelve in the world at one point. Uh, was one of the great doubles players of all times. Of course, Coach Sampras, uh, Federer, Henman, and many others. So the tennis analytics world continues to evolve. You, 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 we see some things on the telecast these days, but they're they, they've been pushing things pretty hard. And and we've seen some interesting studies. We hope to hear a little bit about how that's used. From Paul, we'll have him on shortly, I believe. We have also the head of analytics for the Cincinnati Reds on the show joining us later today. Going to hear more about baseball from inside a team. We hear a lot about baseball analytics from folks like us who sit on the sidelines, but these guys are actually in the building doing things. So that's what our show looks like for the day. We've got a few minutes before we talk to Paul, I believe. Guys, let's talk a little bit about what's caught your eye in the world of sports. Well, so what I would say is, I would say this was one of the moments on Sunday, this past Sunday, oh, yes. that I felt um, robbed. Robbed. Yes, and I'm going to explain that to you. Um, at the end of the day, it looked to me at one point that Tiger was going to win the British Open. He was up by one with seven holes to play. And I thought this was actually be- in the lead. He was in the lead. I said he was up okay. by one with seven holes to play. And I thought this was going to be one of those moments that you never forget. Like in my case, Bucky Dent home run. Scott Norwood, wide right. I thought Tiger Woods comes Feeling back special. and wins the British Open. Jack Nicholas shoots 30 on the back yeah. nine in the 86 Masters, etc. I felt almost robbed on Sunday. You know what, Eric? My thought on that was the reason those moments are so special is because they so, happen. They're so rare. You know, yeah. If you <laughs> figured out the probability on what the, of him winning at that point, it was way less than a half. Way less. Oh, actually, the betting, as just to your point, the betting odds, even at that point, he was plus 150. So it was less than a half, but probably 40%, 35%. So, guys, we're going to talk more about the British Open. We, I, you know, Eric, I can't watch Tiger Woods now without thinking about you because you've been plugging him for a little while now. There's a lot to talk about there, but 
Our guest in this first half hour has real work to do, so we have to catch him before he has to start doing that work. Paul Annika, I'd like to welcome you to, welcome you to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. We understand you're down there in Atlanta, and you drew the early game, early match. So yeah, yeah. we appreciate yeah. you making time for us. Paul, of course, is a longtime tennis player, both singles and doubles. He's also a coach for guys like Pete Sampras, Tim, Tim Henman, Roger Federer, may have heard that, and Sloan Stevens. So he coaches women as well. He's got a new book, Coaching for Life. And works for PlaySite Interactive. Paul, tell us what your what your life is down there like in Atlanta during a tournament. What's what's the routine? What do you pay attention to? What is hard for you as you call a game? Uh-huh. A match. Well, right I'm now, sorry, match. Uh, yeah, th- this week um, um, uh, I'm not behind the commentary booth at, uh, for Tennis Channel. I'm doing some coaching. I've been helping a young American player this year named Taylor Fritz, twenty uh, year old American uh, kid who's ranked about sixty five in the world. Um, he's, his full-time coach is David Nankin, who works for the USTA, who does a great job. And, and Nanks and I work hand-in-hand. Hand and, and luckily, uh, I get, he gets to do all the hard work, and then I take the credit. So that's kind of as you get older, you learn how to do that. So that's, that's what I've been trying to do. But uh, So I'm down here this week with Taylor, and he plays Paul, can I jump match this morning. Can I jump in real quickly? Sure. Why, what, why is it that a longtime coach would bring in someone like you to do kind of the finishing part or, or to give, and allow you to get some of that credit? Why would that transition happen, or what's the complementarity between what you do and what the earlier guys were doing? Well, uh, David Nankin um, has spent four years with Taylor Fritz, and um, Taylor uh, and his the team have just kind of talked to me the last couple of years, and I, you know, they they wanted some of my experience um, about what I've been through, you know, with Pete and Roger and Tim Henman and, and Sloan, and, and maybe help him transition. Uh, he's 20 years old. He's uh, a very promising young player, one of the top Americans, and at 65 in the world for 20 years of age, that's a good start. And they're trying to help me um, kind of be another added ingredient so that he can maybe avoid some of the speed bumps in terms of trying to reach his potential. So, Paul, this is Eric Bradlow. I could have you on the air for hours and hours. I'm a massive tennis fan, so first of all, it's great to have you on the air. Um, I tweeted about an article that was written yesterday about Angelique Kerber, about her use of data and analytics. And so since, you know, I have tons of questions to you about Sampras and Federer, but I wanted to start, since we're an analytics show as well, I wanted to start with that. Could you tell us about the role that analytics plays in tennis and how you've seen it evolve since, let's say, your playing days in the mid-'80s to where we are today? Absolutely, and I read the article yesterday. Wim Fassett, who's been coaching Angie this year, has done a great job. He's a terrific coach, and he's used analytics to help her understand kind of what some of her patterns are and why. Um, I'm a big believer that analytics has a huge role in the game, um, but you can't use them in isolation. And that's why I think as a coach uh, you need to try to figure out why the numbers are there and what they mean. Um, and that's one of the things that Wim has done in terms of Angie's serving patterns to try to understand, have her understand how predictable she's become and how to, what they need to do to try to break it up. So analytics has a broad usage across the game. I, I use it um, quite a lot. You mentioned my uh, involvement with PlaySite. They, they do a lot of work um, with uh, tennis and other sports as well, very into basketball, and they're using soccer, lacrosse, to try to figure out all the different um, kind of ingredients behind the different kind of statistical analysis. Because if I, in, in my, my uh, experience, if you use them in isolation, it doesn't always tell the whole story. And it's the same thing with coaching. You know, when I started out in 
in the 90s coaching Pete Sampras. I took all my notes. I scribbled them down by hand on the side of the court, um, patterns, things like that. And now, you know, you can tap into it real quickly during matches and after matches. Hawkeye is one of the companies that does a lot of um, analytical stuff for the players, for us as commentators as well. And so I use those uh, statistics to plug into game styles of each player, what works, when it works, and why it works. And then you try to convey the messages really simplistically to the player. So I try to use all of that and use it in a balanced way. Um, but the interesting thing about coaching that I've found really is um, you know, every, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, you have to figure out what your player uh, needs to hear to make them maximize their potential. Um, and then you kind of plug into that. Some are really verbose, some like minimal messaging. Um, and then you have to figure out how to use the numbers. But the bottom line is I think it's really imperative to not suffocate their own intuitive skills. Because one thing I, I did see, was fortunate enough to see over the years, is when you're center court at Wimbledon or the U.S. Open and there's 22,000 people watching and another 8 million on TV and it's four all in the fifth set in a men's match, you better be able to figure it out yourself. That's and amazing. So you've got to make sure that the intuition's still there. Wow. Paul, this is uh, Adi Weiner. I wanted to ask you a, a specific question about analytics. Can you give us an example of some piece of knowledge, um, some um, maybe discovery or, a, or a, a game plan that you might have been able to discover looking at the analytics that you, that you really weren't able to see just by watching the game? Sure. I'll give you a good uh, a little anecdote from back in the dark ages where analytics actually was confusing. Um, I was trying to get Pete Sampras to be more aggressive on return of second serves and come forward in the net, come forward to the net after he hits the second serves to impose his athleticism on his opponents. And we were down in Australia, and I saw the first couple matches that he was playing. He had done that a few times and hadn't been real successful. You know, he was down only around 15% success rate in doing it. And so that was a little bit confusing to me. And then I started paying a little bit more close attention. And the next match, I was kind of tweaked the analytics myself. And he did it four times in the first set, but he was unsuccessful, zero for four. But what I did notice is when it got to the tiebreaker uh, in that set, his opponent double-faulted twice. So analytics don't really say anything other than he double-faulted twice, but when you combine kind of the coaching and the playing style patterns and the pressure applied, it's my belief that those four attempts of coming forward to attack an opponent's second serve created enough pressure so that when it got into the tiebreaker, that opponent double-faulted two times. Well, it's a great example of, of making sure we have the right analytics and the right measures and getting the right granularity because if you're looking at the point level there or the or the game level there and then you consider the various strategies deployed during that game it would show up that exactly what you were suggesting paid off at least it, at least the outcome was and you have to make sure you understand the process but it's a fantastic challenge to analytics to get the granularity right and and to and to look at it holistically enough to sure. catch all the interactions sure so paul let me ask you a question this is eric bradlow again i've always wondered this question so Let's imagine we took the Roger Federer of today, the 30, I guess he's 37 now, 37-year-old Roger Federer. We talk about age curves a lot here on Wharton Moneyball and the role of, you know, how players, most players don't get better in their late 30s. Yeah, they seem to be broken, the age yeah. curves. <laughs> could, could Roger Federer of age 37 
beat the Roger Federer of age 25? In other words, let me ask you a more specific question. It could be about Federer or any great player like Federer. Mm -hmm. Does a 37-year-old player sometimes play like a 25-year-old player and sometimes play like a 37-year-old player? Or is the peak performance of a 37-year-old never at the peak performance of a 25-year-old? Right. Well, one of the things I, I believe and I've learned is that there's certain things that you can't measure and and take as kind of the rule, and you kind of need to take them as an exception, and that's people like Roger Federer and, and, and you know, the people like Federer and the Jordans and LeBron Jameses of the world that are able to do things that most people can't. That being said, um, I believe because Roger's gotten smarter and because he has approached his kind of um, process in terms of being prepared – in a in a really big picture way, extremely well. That I think he is better. He's better than he was at 25. Now, wow. that being said, he's not going to be able to play at that level for 11 straight months. That's why you see him taking gaps in his schedule. That's why he takes um, basically six weeks off after Wimbledon. That's why he took six weeks off after Miami in the March. So in March, so he takes those gaps where the body recovers. He does all the strength and conditioning, all the other stuff to get himself prepared to play, and he does it in increments. He basically breaks his season into three or four mini-seasons throughout the year. That's how he's able to play at the high level. But if you asked Roger to do that for 22 events still, no, that's not going to happen. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Paul Anacone this morning early in our show. Paul is a tennis coach with many players, um, very successful players over the years, and a longtime tennis player himself. Paul's down in Atlanta ahead of the tournament down there. Paul, the the is, do you find much difference dealing with the you know the the thirty seven year old Federer versus the what is Sloan Stevens twenty two year twenty five. So and how is it for you crossing from coaching men's players versus women's players, or is there a difference? There's a big difference, um, and and it's not just the gender. Um, as I said initially, you know, one of the biggest challenges is is trying to figure out how the personalities work. And I don't necessarily think it's gender based. I think it's more personality based. And and the younger players tend to be a little bit more uh, insecure, um, a little bit less. Um, um, able to be consistent in all of their uh, ingredients, mental, physical, emotional, um, towards the game. As you get older, you tend to be a little bit more knowledgeable and a little bit more pragmatic about the approach. So, you know, it takes time to figure out what that process is. You know, and, and at the risk of being uh, self-promoting, that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote my book is because it talked about the different personalities of how Sampras, how Federer, how Tim Henman were different and the different methodology that they used to get to the same goal or try to reach that same goal, which is maximizing your potential. So you have to figure out the personality and and the tendency with the young players is they're a little bit more malleable. Um, You can mold them more. The older players, you have to be a little bit more... um, let's say, astute and strategic in terms of trying to break patterns and habits that they've had for longer periods of time. Um, but the ones that truly want to learn, that trust you and believe in what you're doing, tend to have the conversation, and they debate you, and that's that's fine. I actually like that debate. I, I, I embrace it. You have to be able to have that two-way conversation. So 
It's about understanding that personality and figuring out how to get them to believe wholeheartedly, buy into whatever the strategy and whatever the process is that's going to get them as close to their potential as possible. Paul, this is Adi Weiner again. We've been talking about the differences between old and young players, and one of the things that I've observed from my youth is that there's an incredibly large number of older players today than they were, you know, back in the 80s. You know, at age 30, you were completely washed up in, in back, you know, Connors, I think, played at age 30, and I thought he was such an old man. But now we have so many old, older players in the men's side, on the women's side. There is obviously, you know, getting back to the earlier question, a loss of quickness and a loss of foot speed and reaction time. As you get older, there's no way to get around that. And obviously, it's it's been overmatched by increase in wisdom. We're seeing more of that. But I don't understand why today, what's new about today that allows this to happen? What is the, is it a technological advantage? Is it a training advantage? You talk yeah, about is, is taking time off. or sports it, medicine? Yeah, what is it that allows so many of the great players to continue when we didn't see it, you know, in yesteryear? Well, you hit the nail on the head. You talked about the ingredients, right? It's the sports science stuff in general. Um, you go into the uh, the gyms now prior to matches, even at this tournament here in Atlanta, and you watch how the guys warm up and what they do um, pre-match, post-match with warm-up, cool-down, rest and recovery, strength and conditioning, diet. And those three components um, really on top of the primary component, which is scheduling, that really allows the longevity to occur. Um, and again, everybody's a little bit different. But as you mentioned before with Roger, you know he doesn't play a full schedule. You know, I think he's played seven tournaments. This but what year. prevented Connors from playing? Why did he do it? Why, I mean, why did what did what did those guys do back then that they don't do now? Do they just do they drink more, eat badly, uh, not warm up? I'm trying to think back in the day, yeah, right? You know, I, I actually think everything is more meticulous, right? The diet, the, the kind of calories they put in their body, um, the kind of energy they put in the body, the you know the, the fluids that they drink, um, the, the supplements that they drink to sustain energy, sustain strength. Uh, the rest and recovery. A lot of these guys now are traveling, and the ladies are traveling with full-time physios to take care of their body, you know, daily massages, stretching, rest and recovery, ice baths, all the the cryo stuff that people are using to cool down. I mean, I, I, I'm not a big believer in one-way works. I think lots of different ways work. But if you look at those ingredients, we didn't have those 25 years ago. I mean, Pete didn't have those in the 90s. And, and so... It's it's really about trying to um, get ahead of the curve in, in terms of keeping the body fresh. And I, I actually do believe that, you know, most athletes, even when I played, we ate pretty good. You know, we ate okay. <laughs> but it's not compared to what it is now. You look at what these uh, athletes are eating and the way they're supplementing uh, their diets and what they're doing with in terms of keeping uh, the fluids in their body with um, all the mineral replacements and supplements. It's a totally different ballgame. I've heard um, some of the top players uh, reflect on their yesteryear, like I think McEnroe maybe used to say that they just didn't make enough money back then to stop, to either, either afford all these, uh, you know, the the personal trainers and people they bring with them in their entourage, and they didn't, they couldn't afford to stop playing. The money is just much better now. Can you reflect on that? Is that true? Am yeah, I, am yeah, I misrepresenting? Yeah, look, like, it's, it's all the other sports. Like the other sports, the money's bigger. Um, but look, I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with Pete uh, with Sampras in the early 90s, and he made plenty of money. Um, he had his you know, he had his physio with him and myself, and back then the physio took care of all of the injuries with his body. He had a strength and conditioning coach that didn't come with him every week but did it periodically throughout the year. Um, and I also think that back then 
we all believed that playing more was the right thing to mm-hmm. do. Yeah. You know, we all believed that playing more was how you get better and how you improve in big moments. And, I mean, look, let's take a look at the other sports now, too. Um, I think this year was a little bit of an anomaly that LeBron James played all 82 regular season games in the NBA, and I think he wanted to do that to make a point, which he did. But if you look at how the other coaches rest players throughout the year through the regular season um, in the NBA and in Major League Baseball. Yeah, look what's happened to pitching in Major Major League Baseball. It's the same thing. Right. Yeah, there's a reason that they do that. So I think people are getting a little bit more strategic and a little bit more measured in how they approach it. And the players are doing the same thing on the tennis court. Now, it's a little different because it's an individual sport. And the way the rankings work, players basically play more out of fear. You know, they, 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 they feel like they've got to play more to give themselves more chances to be ranked higher. But the best ones trust what they're doing and know that at the end of the day, they're going to have their good weeks, they're going to have their bad weeks, but at the end of the year, they'll be just fine. So, Paul, let me ask you a last question about uh, Taylor Fritz. Um, since I do follow tennis quite a bit and I've been following his career, let's imagine you're 20-year-old Taylor Fritz and you're saying, you know, let's put Murray in there as well. You've got the big four in tennis. If you're Taylor Fritz, realistically, or not Taylor Fritz and someone like him, Zverev, someone of similar age, Kachanov, etc., when can you pass the big four? Like, at some point, is it two years, three years? Like, at some point, they're going to not be playing anymore, and these 20-year-olds will be 23 and maybe nearing their peak. Is it a two-year frame? Like, what's the time horizon you have for a Taylor Fritz? Well, that's why I came on the show today. I was wondering if you guys were going to tell me that. The last half a decade, we've been wondering when Federer and Nadal. <laughs> we've been betting against. I've been down. betting against him in losing. So <laughs> you know, it's, you know. Look, in all, in all seriousness, no one beats Father Time. We know that. But um, Roger and Rafa, these guys are wrestling them to neutral right now, pretty right. well. Um, but there is going to be a time where they're going to become more vulnerable. And I think the clock is ticking. And when you see the Sasha Zverevs at three or four in the world right now, um, at physically what he's done in the last kind of year and a half, he's put on about 15 pounds of muscle. He's six foot six. He's still developing. You know, he's right there. Zverev's right there. Dominic Team on clay is right there. Um, so I- I'm thinking that the clock actually is winding down, and as much of a fan as I am of Rafa and Roger, they're not going to be there forever. So these young guys know that. They, they know that they're there, um, but they also know that if they keep working, they're not going to always be there. Um, I, you know, with Roger at 37, you've you got to think it's – What's it going to be? Another year, two years, where he can? Where he can <laughs> we, we had that conversation continuously around two years ago. So it's amazing, right? I, yeah. look into, I remember when I started with Roger in 2010. People were like, oh, you know, he's not going to win anymore. Here we are, 2018, right? And he's doing pretty well. Paul, we want to let you go, but one last question: What can analytics do that would be more useful to you? How can we be better? How can the community serve you as a tennis coach better? I think analytics has been a godsend for me. I, I love what it's doing, and as long as I'm aware of how to plug it into process, playing styles, and strategy, the numbers are gold dust. Mm-hmm. But I just got to make sure that I don't use them in isolation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Terrific. Listen, really appreciate your taking time out of your schedule down there to join us. This has been a great conversation. Good luck with your good luck with your guys down there. Thanks so much. I appreciate the time, guys. Look forward to chatting again soon. Absolutely. That was Paul Anacone, tennis coach down in Atlanta before the tournament down there. He is coach, has been coach to players like Pete Sampras, Tim Hinman, Roger Federer, and Sloane Stevens. 
He is the author of a book you might be interested in, Coaching for Life. He emphasized with us the importance of coaching differently for different players, depending on their needs. And he is with PlaySight Interactive, a sports technology company. So, fellas, we've got a few minutes before we go to break. Curious to hear uh, your take on that. And your, what, we didn't have as much time as we'd like. Like, what would you have liked? To I, heard I, him? You know what? I, I felt like I got something valuable. What's which that? Is, which is the observation that, that uh, you know, that rest is something that we didn't know <clears> back then. And that just have someone who's been around long enough to reflect back 25 years ago and think we didn't understand that rest was so important. I mean, we've. Start, we've been talking about it on yeah, I, feel, our show. I feel like we talk about it almost we, we, every week, it, but isolated to a particular sport. We'll yeah. talk about how pitching is, you know, yeah, like the role of pitching has changed yep. in, in, in baseball. We'll talk about, you know. Well, even for him to say, when, we were, when I was on the tour, we thought more was better. Yeah. Right, exactly. It was just a, cl- a classic uh, explanation. We, 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 you know, when Tom Brady took four, four, was it four weeks off? Off. Um, <laughs> well, you know, he didn't exactly do he, that by choice. And then choice. he came back and he was better than ever. And people would, were, we didn't really understand, you know, that actually the break might have been actually quite actually, useful. Actually, my yeah. takeaway from <laughs> Paul, do it again. <laughs> my takeaway was actually your comment, uh, was the conversation you had with him, Cade, which was when Paul was talking about be careful with analytics because he said he was telling the story about how with Federer he was trying a tactic and Federer was 0 for 4. Oh, Except in then in the big points. And so if one just looked simply at a metric, maybe Sampras is 0 for 4 and you're like, well, that strategy didn't work. Well, and small sample size. No, no. I know it's also <laughs> no, it's a small a, sample it's size, a, but it's also yeah. you talked about, this was your response to him, you have to think holistically about it. And that's where in some sense I always say context matters. Because if you just, if, if you're just someone that doesn't know anything about the sport, you can come up with a statistic or a metric and say, this is the how to measure success. And he realized that there was the future value of this strategy and that's why to me that was the takeaway and that he realized that but it's a very general equilibrium point he made actually it's a very from kind of an economics framework you can't just consider the direct impact you have to consider the indirect reactions and his idea was this more aggressive response to second serves and it kept on not working for him except that it started playing with the psychology of his opponent who had trouble with his second serve and started right. double exactly. double fault. Do you do you worry that you're inferring and making inference from some small samples and this is just looking at the result oh, and sure. going backwards but and we, saying aha? Of course, but we know this is right theoretically. Yeah. We know that's right, and we also know that it's something that analysts are prone to miss if you don't have the proper framework. Yeah, and so a, a proper general equilibrium, if you will, it's a little pretentious. I, I understand, but if you if you have you the proper full holistic <laughs> framework also, for a for a for a tennis game, yeah. not just a point. But how does that? What's the consequence? Well, you can play it through the match as well. Also, was I the only one that was? I would say even shocked when he said he thought the thirty-seven-year-old Federer was better than the twenty-five-year-old Federer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I understand wisdom and and you know maybe his tactics have changed and maybe his training has improved from when he was twenty-five. Maybe just even yeah. I mean, I I guess I, I guess the kind of general point is Roger Federer is wise and smart enough about his training regime and the amount he plays. So that his sort of peak athletic performance at 37 is not so far right. off his peak athletic performance at 25. And 
even if it's slightly behind, that extra wisdom more than makes up. And for I it. would, I'm just surprised. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying I'm yeah. surprised by his answer. Yeah, so I would that, have yeah. guessed the peak athletic performance would have been, I'll make a number up, 80% of the previous performance, yeah. and that wisdom isn't worth that effect well, size. It's well, yeah, I mean, it's, I, it's interesting in tennis because there's three things that kind of go against each other. I mean, wisdom obviously matters a lot, strategy and just brains of playing. But there's also strength. That doesn't decay nearly as fast as reaction time and foot speed. I would have thought, as a naive watcher of tennis, that that reaction time and foot speed he, is a he, dominant he, thing. He, he, did also, no. he did also say that Roger Federer is an exception <laughs> right, to almost right, everything, right. right? I mean, certainly my own wisdom did not increase in the 25 to 37 <laughs> range to counterbalance my Hold loss on, of how, athleticism. And, and I yes. doubt it. I, for how most people, you, I think that's probably the case. How old are you now? <laughs> More has than 37. Has More than 37. Started, has no, no, I, I, I'm still waiting for the wisdom part. <laughs> yeah, the 43, I'm still waiting yeah. for the don't, wisdom part. Don't we have, couldn't we compare his ELO? Zelo, Zelo, yeah, yeah, right. So that would answer the question, you know, in kind of an abstract way. It's hard because you know one of the things that you think about is I think today's players are better. I mean, in, if you just took them in the abstract, if, if it's anything, you, you don't think it's comparable. Elo's over time. Uh, yeah, I don't think they are. I mean, they do it, but they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be. Well, they're era adjusted. I don't think you're supposed to be able to go back and. I mean, they're they're essentially error adjusted. You can you can't say this a person who has a, a 1800 Elo today from 30 years ago would have beaten the same person. They're not the same. Why not? I would have thought that was exactly. Well, I mean, first of all, it's, an, it's a completely unidentifiable problem, and anyone not, who tries not, to do well, that. Not exa- well, 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 not exactly. Well, no, 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 let me just tell you. I'll, so I'll just spend 30 seconds on how we dealt this at ETS. So we've all taken standardized tests. I'm sure many of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball have taken standardized tests. Oh, yeah. When I worked at ETS, one of the big problems we worked on is how do you compare someone that got a 14. Today, with someone that got, let's say, a 1450, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the answer is first of all, it's an overlapping design. You have people, for example, yeah, Federer didn't play McEnroe, but McEnroe played Sampras, Sampras played Federer. No, I'm just saying. Different times and they shift. I understand that, but people use these overlapping designs to try to make these links. I mean, you have to make assumptions in order to do this comparison, but they're not completely unreasonable assumptions. I agree. I mean, we do this in baseball, too. And, they're, and, and they have been done in baseball, the, and they've the, often done incorrectly. Do I, do I understand correctly? The problem with these intergenerational comparisons is that the ELO rating is fundamentally relative to your competition. Yes, absolutely. But it's the linking. It's the fact that Sampras did play both McEnroe and Federer. So that what, helps but it's not the same McEnroe what, when they do it, and, that, what, and you have to adjust okay, for that with assumptions. I'm, that's what I'm asking you. Yes. What, what assumption do you need for that linking to be sufficient? You have to dig in and figure out what they are, and basically that they don't raised, change. Well, you the, raised the, one objection. The number which one, is, the number one is the one I think you were going to say, Cade, which is what's called a mean drift. So if the entire population is moving upwards, then you have a challenge in making these comparable adjustments because someone ranked in the twentieth percentile right. in two thousand eighteen is not the twentieth percentile right. in nineteen eighty five. So that's why you typically demean the data. You try yeah. to first suck out the average effect before you do these. But that there's that's hard to do. But right. I agree with you. So a mean shift like, would like be one in baseball. The pitching and the hitting get better together. There you go. It becomes very hard to disentangle that. And the people who who continue who play in overlapping seasons are a selected bias group, and that and that causes a, a difficulty that you have to deal with. Yeah, and, and it's hard. It's, it's a no, hard it, problem. It, it but Elo doesn't do that. Yeah, I mean, because I, mean, I mean, all these sports do actually evolve over time. I mean, football as well. I mean, you know, Philip Rivers is going to be finish his career as a top 10 like yard in terms of like a lot of the numbers top, top 10, 10 quarterback probably top 5 quarterback 
in terms of is, counting is, statistics. Is he historically a top five quarterback? Right. No. No. I love how you just jump. I love passing has changed <laughs> yeah. over time. So, yeah. by the way, and we need to wrap up the segment, but the, look, I found an old 538 article that gives us a graph of men's tennis ELO ratings over time, which is exactly what we want, but it's unfortunately three years old. But I learned a few things. So, how high do you think Bjorn Borg was rated at the peak of his performance in like 80, Is he centered at 1,500? Is that no, where they centered? Like 2,500 was – he's he's topping out. Like the, the greatest men's scores, uh, ELO ratings ever are Bjorg in 80 at about 2,500. Federer in 07-08, uh, maybe. Yeah. About the same number. And then Djokovic again in, you know, like 13 or so. So I don't I haven't seen anything since fifteen. I'm sorry, but Federer since that peak in like oh that was his peak, yeah. But it's drifted down in as of this article, which is in 2015. It's like 2,300 or so. So it's a pretty big drop. We can argue about era adjustments, but that's a pretty big drop over it has, a period of time. It has to do with dominance. So so okay. So Bjorn Borg his his peak was more dominant than Federer. Look, was. I'll just say it again. Bjorn Borg won 11 major tournaments. Right. And he stopped playing at the age of 26. Exactly. So he was <laughs> the dominant player of his era, and in an era where there were other great players. So it's not like we can just say, well, he didn't beat anybody good. No, he beat a lot of great players. Right. Hall of Fame all-time greats. All right, guys. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics live every Wednesday morning coming to you from the SiriusXM Business Radio Studios at the University of Pennsylvania. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. That's the whole crew. Been doing it for four plus years now. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Give us a shout. That number, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Great way to reach out if you're listening during one of our replays. We're going to be replayed four or five times over the course of the week. You can also email during the show. We, we sometimes respond. We are happy to respond during the show. Or you can follow us on Twitter. On Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> at WMoneyball is our, is our is handle our on Twitter. Just tweeted about our conversation with Paul Anacone on Twitter. Did you? Yes, I did. We, you, can, you can send us questions. You can give us, uh, us over-under suggestions. We do an over-under segment at the end of every show. You can respond to Eric's Paul Anacone tweets. We are open lines for the next half hour. We had a guest in the first half hour, so we're going to do just kind of around the horn, find out what people have been paying attention to. Guys, it's a little bit slow in the world of sports, but I know there are some things going on. Adi, what are you fired up about? I'm a little bit interested in the Tour de France, what which is actually the highlight of Europe right now. It's European sports because they don't have it. You know, the World Cup's over. They don't care about baseball, so they're going crazy over it, particularly in France. But what's interesting about it is that it's a team sport, and an individual sport, which most people don't understand about cycling. And this year, usually there's a bunch of teams from different locations and different sponsors. And the, the dominant team for the last few years has been the Sky team. And their champion, who's won four years in a row, is Chris Froome. And this year, they have another member of the team 
who is leading. He's in, in so-called yellow jersey. And there's only uh, one week left, less than one week left. And Froome is competing as well. And, and he's in the same exact, exactly. So Geron Thomas is on the team, and he's in the, in the yellow, yellow jersey. But Froome is just behind him. And so nobody we, knows what's going to happen so because the team's supposed to have one leader. That, that's I'm <laughs> asking for clarification. My memory of this, uh, you know, most of Americans... 90% of their knowledge of the Tour de France or higher goes back to the Lance Armstrong days. Uh, or Greg Lamont. Or Greg Lamont. Lamont, 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 bef- Lamont before that. But it took us a little while to realize that it was this team sport, and it's basically one guy who's supposed to be the, the – That's right. The team's all supporting that guy, that's essentially. Right. And they essentially keep them him in the race so that they can use their, their particular talents at the right time. But there, but there are – there have been moments where there have – there's these evolutions of the backup guy is, is becoming the lead guy, and the lead guy is kind of the age curve we're always talking about, that's fighting, right. fighting father time as as as, as as we just but heard. it's really about money. I mean, Jerron Thomas is, is would be a lead guy on almost any other team, but because he's paid by Sky to be a support guy, that's what I he does. Now he see. goes out and wins other races, but in, when it comes to the Tour de France, he's a backup guy, but, but he's in the lead, so, and nobody knows what's going to happen. W- w- but is that true? I mean, what's suppo- I mean what, what are the possibilities? I mean, like <laughs> the second guy can't, like, unless it's, at some point he could, if it's clearly obvious that he's the more competitive guy, right? Well, I don't know, and that's why it's interesting. There's a couple places where riders distinguish themselves, and that's in the very steep mountains. Which is in, still coming which up. Which is still coming in up. In the last and, week. And then we have a single time trial, which is coming up, and that's, that's racing the against day. the clock. And so what can happen is really no one knows. I mean, maybe Thomas just sort of falls apart, in which case Froome will just take over. But if they both are strong and, you know, the team needs each other, and the question is who does who support? And is Froome going to go and support Thomas? Thomas is going to still support Froome? And it's very interesting from I, a point of view of a spectator. I would imagine it's going to go down to, as you said, we both know the mountainous stages. There's still a few left. Yep. It will. They'll decide the with two days left who they're going to support to win um, as long as one of them wins. Because right now, as you said, there could be a 30-second, one-minute, two-minute swing, which will decide the oh, Tour yes. de France for sure. Um, for a naive not, person who does not watch the Tour de France, what this support role that these teammates play, what what do they actually do? Oh, well, there's two major areas. So, I mean, you could talk about it as well, Adi. The first major area is breaking of the wind. And so the first thing is when the aerodynamics of team riding is so far superior to I'm right. riding by myself. Let me give you an example. Let's imagine all of us were Tour de France-level riders, and Shane Jensen decides he's going to break away from the pack. You have no chance to break away from the pack, none whatsoever, because the other riders will team together to track you down. In other words, four of us riding together will catch that one single rider. Absolutely. We just, we just will. And so, the more people you have breaking the, you know, getting in front of the wind so you can draft, the easier it is to and do it, the, the second, faster you go. And the second one is the literal, just like you see claimed in horse racing, is we can block for you. Mm-hmm. In other words, we can block, literally form a physical block that will prevent the riders behind us from getting past right. you. But what I think is very interesting about the Tour de France, and particularly uh, vis-a-vis the conversation we had earlier about rest, this is hugely important because if you sit in the middle of a block of b- block of riders, you can go. The, ra- the races are five hours. You can sit for four and a half hours and essentially don't do anything, saving up your energy for exactly. the for the last mountain uh, stage for the final sprint. And this is this. I wonder whether there and there sh- there should be, but I doubt really there is uh, an analytics crew that looks at this and sees what works and 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 what are the well, no, that's not I, exactly true. Yeah, that's I, don't, not no, true. I don't think you should underestimate the no. analytics they put into this. What, thing. what I do know, I haven't read about it. No, no. What I do know is. This is even in real time. 
I've actually watched a fair amount of the Tour de France, not in the last year or two, but you can actually see for each rider their cycling speed. You can actually see kind of they'll even come up with this measure of like energy outputted for each rider. So they're all teched up and there's no question that they're, you know, they're uh team and the, the nine riders the people supporting them are absolutely getting real time oh, they get data. data the question is what what do they do with it and and how does that integrate into strategy and forecasting i, I think the first i think a first approximation is always consider the amount of money spent on a sport i think ah. it's something we've learned over time by talking to things like i don't know like nascar is that there's more going on behind the scenes like i think reliably we discover there's more going on behind the scenes in analytics than we thought and it only stands to reason, really. Whenever you know, consider the thing you started with, Adi, that Europe is crazy about Tour de France right now. If that's true, and all the money they're spending going, money, they're spending money on every last edge they can get. Okay, in football, every team uses analytics all the time. Absolutely not. Okay, <laughs> just just you got to point that out. Anything else? <laughs> well, so so you raise a good point, and so I think one of the key factors there is the culture. And so I would ask the question: What's the culture in bike, in bike, in, in, in bicycling? And is it pro analytics or anti analytics? I know what it is for damn sure, and that's pro edge. I mean, yeah. if history tells right. us anything, it's right. pro edge. Mm-hmm. I kind of doubt that they're anti analytics. Also, in individual sports, we're seeing in Olympic sports, for example that they're really at the cutting edge for, of sports science. I mean, come on. We know these guys. Have yeah, been the, the cyclists are definitely edge. the cutting edge of sports science. They always yeah. have been. I think the other, the other topic you could raise, and it relates to your point, Kate, is how many different ways in cycling, compared to maybe football, can you get an edge? Like, so in, in cycling, the bikes are essentially, they're all the same. Yep. And so it's not through the equipment. And so you could say the training. Yep, maybe. But I would say they all have a very similar training regimen. So at the end of the day, I hate to say it, but like analytics is, I don't want to say your last resort, but it's not like you have a laundry list of 15 other ways where in football you could say, wow, there's all kinds of different, whether it's play calling, it's the draft, it's the managing of the, you know, it's the managing of the the cap. I just don't think there are that many in cycling. So they, I don't say they're desperate for analytics, but they're desperate for analytics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we should, we should grab someone and talk about it one of these days. We've got a phone call from PA Siva, Siva from Pennsylvania. Um, Welcome to the show. Hello? Yes, curious to hear what you're uh, interested in talking about this morning. Siba from PA, you're alive on the air. Oh, thank you. So um, yesterday night, I'm actually a Yankees fan, and I heard about the Zach Britton trade. And I knew we were always linked to him early on, but I was really interested in why you think that was a good or bad move, especially because the Yankees already have a really strong bullpen with five or six lockdown guys, and their starting pitching has really struggled this year. Uh, Tanaka did throw a complete game shutout yesterday. But other than uh, he's been inconsistent, Severino gave up six runs the night before. So I was just wondering why you don't think they went out and got a starter like Blake Snell or something like that and instead traded for a high-end reliever. High-end reliever. Terrific, Great terrific, question. Yeah, terrific question. question. We have a couple guys here who might have Yankee thought about fans, this. Yep. So I've, I've got two thoughts. Um, the first one is uh, don't assume, by the way, that the Yankees are done. Um, the trade debt, they've still got till July got 31st, yep. plenty of time to pick up a starter. Second, um, I don't know if you saw uh, Araldus Chapman the other night, um, but he was awful. He hit a batter, walked three guys through basically no strikes. And I'm not saying they've lost faith in Chapman, but also we've talked about this on the air. His top end speed was 97 that night, which implies maybe his knee is not right. And so you take Chapman out of the equation. Let's imagine, even for any period of time, let's remember, they're behind the Red Sox, but let's say you take Chapman out of the equation. 
Who's their closer? Do you trust Batances to be the closer? Do you trust Robertson or Mil- you know who do you trust to be the closer? And so to me, Britain is not only an insurance policy for a potentially injured Araldus Chapman, who clearly was not right the other night, physically, mentally, right. etc. Number two, you can never have enough. They're planning on using him as a left-handed setup guy. And so regardless, you can never have enough. But it's an insurance policy, and don't assume the Yankees won't pick up a starter. And let me also add that I think this is potentially interesting. One, one, people mostly think that when you have a strength, that when you want to go get something, you should just get something that's opposite or complementary. Right. Your strength, great, but great sometimes great getting more of your strength is better. Okay, yeah, and I mean, I mean, certainly, uh, come playoff time, we've sort of seen over the last few years if there's been any kind of, I guess, systematic trend is that the role of relief pitching is so gigantic in the playoffs. You're right, and and so I mean, I think the Yankees are loading up for a short a, series, a short series, a okay. potential one game series. I mean, there's there's just. In every sport, there's always this question of optimal resource allocation, mm-hmm. you know, roster construction. And you've just raised one of the fundamental strategies. Do you go for balance and shoring up weaknesses, or do you double down on strengths? And, and we don't, the answer surely varies across sport. And it's not actually that constrained in baseball, right? It's not like they actually have a fixed budget and they have to, like, a- optimally allocate resources. They can just get... I know, but, but well, I mean, we had a decision people. to make. The decision was to go out and get a starter. Let's, yeah. I mean, but we, actually, we, if, you think about, if you think about the Yankees, we've talked about this, why the playoffs are very different than the regular season. We all know the Yankees are going to make the playoffs. We're not sure if they're going to be a wild card, but you need mm-hmm. three top starters in the playoffs. Whoever they pick up, Tanaka and Severino are starting, and they in the don't playoffs. need to go the full game. They can right. even go five innings. Well, that's my point. Yeah. They need a third starter. Maybe it'll be Sabathia. Maybe it'll be someone else. But the reality is, they only need three good starters. But the value of if those guys can only go five innings, and now you add Britain to all the other that's playoff right. guys. It's game's over right. come the fifth inning if the Yankees are and leading. Maybe so there they'll could take, be more value. Maybe they'll take my advice and start with an opener. Which would be terrific. One of these, one of these terrific relievers. You mean, op- like in the open, first, the open, open, open the game. Open the game. With, with, you might in the see playoffs. the Yankees do that in the playoffs this year. If they, That's if, right. If they have to go with either Sabathia or I'll make it up. Start with Zach Britton and let him pitch the first two innings. Right against you the top of the line. Absolutely, see the Yankees so, do that. So imagine uh, against the Red Sox, beginning with Zach Britton. I can believe that you guys like that strategy, and I can, and I know that we had an example of it earlier this season. Are you serious that you think someone as high profile as the Yankees in a situation as high profile as the playoffs? might use that strategy? Well, think about management. Who who's to takes the big risk? And who is secure enough in their jobs to, to make their a risk like that? Their first year manager? Well, no, but I think this will come, <laughs> from, from, no. I think this will come from the leadership. Um, I mean, I think this is really the issue. Will will someone like Cashman allow this to happen? Well, no, so, but who's going to have the initiative on right. pushing well, they, it they to just happen? Got, this is the kind of thing that doesn't happen. On the, I mean, this happens in the real It's the not going to happen. I, I like, it's not going to happen in the playoffs. I would, I would bet a lot of money I'd love to see it. I, I, I appreciate that it's a political analysis yeah. on, uh, on, on whether it happens or not because I think that's exactly right. And I'm with Shane. I, I don't see it happening on that high stage right. this, this year. In the I, future I don't either, Cade, but I think your question was exactly the right one. Would you rather have – I don't know. Let's make this up. Would you rather have a top ten closure added to your lineup – or possibly get a starter that maybe is a third starter, maybe is a fourth starter. I would argue the Yankees are better off investing in their strengths right now, getting a player you know can contribute to the team. They're not getting a number one starter, Unless, probably. If they could. If they, if could, they could get, get DeGrom, a, they should get if it. If they could get DeGrom, that's different. But would you take... like? So your goal as the Yankees is to bring someone in that'll be your number three starter. Yeah. That's great. That's <laughs> not that great. Well, no. let's, let's, it's also a g- good point to re- to remind us how big 
how how big a share of a baseball team's roster is the bullpen? I mean, it's ridiculous. Twelve or thirteen, so half the roster is pitchers. Yeah, and, and about then, seven of those are, are and relievers. more than half of those more are than relievers. half of those are relievers. So you're talking about more That's than right. a quarter of the roster are relievers. We forget that. We tend mm-hmm. to think. I mean, the naive baseball fan tends to think it's a handful of guys over there. No, it's more than a quarter of the roster. It's more and, than and any other position. And they typically are underused as a group. Yeah. All right, so tell me, when I see this happen, I mean, I'm much more of an Orioles fan than the Yankees, and so I'm seeing them, you know, distribute their great their talent parts. For, for, pro, for, quote, prospects. And, you know, if the question is, do those prospects ever add up to something? And you can flip it around, and from the Yankees' perspective, we tend to like, you know, build the farm system, build the pipeline, don't let go of great prospects. How do you feel about this trade? Are, are you guys are like foaming at the mouth, win now kind of fans? Are you willing to part with the talent? Well, or did they not have to part with well, that? Well, let's much? be clear. I heard I heard this last night, and I was actually surprised the Yankees got, quote, unquote, you never know, but got as good a deal. The the pitching, the top pitching prospect, I don't remember the person's name, but what I do remember is the person was the ninth best ranked pitcher in the Yankees farm system. That was the top guy that they yeah. gave how, up. How many pitchers are in the Yankee farm system? Oh God! Uh, there's probably uh, more than sixty 100. or seventy. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So they give up so numbers. It's not. It's not nothing. No, 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 it's not nothing. But I was surprised that it wasn't like. I mean, not that nine's not good. That yeah, person yeah. could end up being a Hall of Fame pitcher. Right. I was just surprised that the Yankees like they gave up three pitchers, but the top one was the ninth ranked prospect. Is, not a not ranked prospect. The ninth ranked prospect in the Yankees system. Yeah. I is don't it know. Because, is it because Britain is it's just a rental? Is, he's, yeah, he's, he's only, a rental. It's yeah. a rental. So he's going to have to sign him, or leverage. they're going to lose him. Right? They have yeah. So little. I think the O's were going to trade this guy over the off season with a year left, if not for his injury. Right. So they, that really hurt their leverage. All right. So that's that's a little bit on base. What else around baseball right now? How, are, are the Sox well, still sitting? The Sox up? are ridiculous. Well, I, well, I don't want to talk about that. Shane's just sitting here quietly they're smiling. <laughs> they're, 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 well, while we still have you know the real season. question with the Red Sox is: Are they going to actually threaten for the all-time number of wins? Uh, um, What's that number? One sixteen. I don't think. They uh, no, it's, it's a long shot, but I think it's starting to be leave the long shot territory right, to right. actually calculate. They're right what seventy-one and thirty-one. Yeah, Fangraphs uh, only has yeah. them projected at 106. I know that's work. the projection. I mean, but but 116 is not ridiculous anymore. They'd have to continue. Uh, they'd Ten have games to, over projection was less than half the season. That sounds ridiculous to me. I yeah. I will. I think the Let's first do of the all, math. They'd have to go 45 and 15 to reach 116. Yeah. So that's 50, which is which is above their current pace. Yeah. But it's not sure. insane anymore. No, no. I, I mean, it's they basically insane. been playing. I mean, I don't like a 700 team. Yeah. Um. For a large part of the season, I think it's I think it's fabulous. <laughs> I kind of wonder how they're doing it. I mean, mostly they're doing it because they've been tremendously lucky about avoiding injuries. I, I can't think of a real big, you know, long term injury it, that they've had to deal with this season, especially uh, pitching. Mm-hmm. That's a the generous attribution to note the number of injuries. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I, mean that's a, I mean, they've assembled an amazing team, but like, what what happens to amazing teams to have them not be amazing? Is the key injuries? I know, we we talk about this all the time, Shane. I just want to be clear. So let's say the Red Sox. Let's imagine the Red Sox win the division. Let's even imagine they eclipse the. I guess it was the Seattle Mariners that won yeah. one sixteen. Let's imagine they eclipse that number. So come the playoffs, fifty fifty. All right, so it's you still, still, you still consider them what one and eight. To the one and eight. You give them no, I know <laughs> the they didn't win that year. Win. Uh, I understand that, team. but you still consider them no better. Like how much better than twelve and a half percent do you give them if they get? They're a little bit better. The first, well, they have to go against the Yankees, so that's yeah. the problem, and, yeah. and so that's their, their still, toughest. Maybe fifteen percent chance, but they're not At like most. a quarter uh, or third. No, no, no yeah. way. So, and then the Astros. I mean, that's the problem. Shane, These this are tough teams. I mean, it's amazing to me. There's like potentially three teams in the same. 
league that are going to eclipse 100 games. Yes, right now. For sure. All, all are projected. Yankees yeah. just barely, 101, but Astros are projected at 104. Sox at and 106. who do we really have to thank for that? The Kansas City Royals, the Baltimore Orioles. They are beaten. <laughs> the Orioles I mean, to we take have some the historically for, uh, bad teams Yeah, we do. But they're but getting beaten up on. As a fan, this was going to be my question yeah. to you, Shane. As a fan, do you worry a little bit about the – if you're truly facing coin flips in the yeah. – Playoffs and you're just setting up heartbreak by having such a phenomenal regular season. Oh yeah, season, no, that's right. right. Expectations that's right. are just going I mean, through the roof. That's right. I mean, but I mean, I think of people who watch enough baseball, and certainly most Red Sox fans know that regular season results are not a guarantee of playoffs. But we all agree all. on one thing: the, you got to win that division. Yeah, whatever it takes. It's I mean, one ever, less coin flip. If you want to talk about what's going to drive postseason success. You don't want to be in that coin flip nope. one game. No, no, uh, game. yeah, no, and it, it is. I mean, we're we're basically setting up. There's almost it's almost guaranteed. There's going to be a 100 win team. Absolutely. in that coin flip game. So, guys, let's look, talk about the National League quickly before we have to go away. Especially with Machado going out to the Dodgers. How, Dodgers how, looking much better. How do you? Th- I mean, it, tell me how it works in baseball. You just put a new piece in there, and all yeah. the, and everything's it, it, it doesn't change anything else. Nothing it just else. adds his value. No yep. interactions. Just nope. You get an upgrade over what he was what almost. Were, well, you don't believe that there's no interaction. No, okay. It's um, it's it's. it's let me put it this way: measurement error or ability to estimate it is extraordinarily hard, and it's about the order of the effect. Okay, tell me how much better are the Dodgers because Machado was there, and why? I would say, uh, well, Chris Seeger was their shortstop, so he's on the DL. So that's the real. They were weak at this position, so I'd probably say at least another two, two and a half wins. Wow! In the rest of the season, half yeah. the season, it's only about half. Yeah. But by the way, when he first came up, he was playing third. How long has he been playing short, and was that just like a nothing transition? I'm pretty sure he played third last night, by the way. He did, yeah. He he, he moves back and forth. Yeah. I think he, it's more that he'd be playing shortstop for the Dodgers. Right, but he played third last night. Yeah. yeah. But there's a lot more value, presumably, for a player, a good defensive player who can play shortstop. Yeah. But is he's a right? terrific hitter. I mean, he's, baseball's one of the, baseball's top ten hitters. Which you don't expect out of your No, shortstop. and it adds a lot of value. Okay, that may be one of the w- main ways he That's adds right. value. Okay. What, um, well, the National League wild card race is crazy in baseball. It's crazy. There are five right, or right. six teams Fighting within forward. two good. games of each other. That's it's crazy. We, we, need, we need some of that. So we have a good division race in the American League. We have a good wild card race in the, in, the, in, the, in the National League as we roll into the latter half of the season. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have one half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Broadcasting from Business Radio Studios. Kate Massey this morning hosting with Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. We just lost Audie Weiner, who teaches at 9 o'clock on weekday mornings in the summer, remarkably. To, well, to a high school, Wharton Moneyball Academy. Wharton Moneyball Academy. He's had a group of 70 or 75 so, this year. 75 students in for a couple of weeks. Just expanded the program from two weeks to three. I think they're in the third week now. And uh, great crew. Great crew up there. Um, and Adi organizes that program. It's a great, it's a great little contribution he makes. But we have um, an hour left in the show. In this segment, we're going to go into another guest conversation. We have Sam Grossman joining us. Sam is the assistant general manager and head of analytics at the Cincinnati Reds. We're delighted to have the chance to talk to someone in the building. Sam, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for making the time. Appreciate it. Where are you calling in from this morning? 
Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yeah, from your office. Excellent. You've been there a little while now, right? Twelve seasons with the Reds? Yeah, it's hard to believe. But um, I started in 2007 here. And, uh, yeah, you know, we've uh, had our ups and downs, but it's, it's been a good time since well, I've been here. Tell us how you, how you got your break, if you will. Some of our listeners are interested in those kinds of breaks, and we always like to give stories about how people get involved with their, with their careers in analytics. Absolutely. Um, so out of school, uh, I worked uh, at an insurance company doing uh, actuarial work. You know, that's amazing. Is, is it, uh, I think Michael Fishman with the Yankees had the same background. Is that right? You must I, know. You must know fish, right? I do. Um, you know, he was in a little before me, so he was a guy that, you know, when I was trying to get jobs, sending out resumes and everything, I had met. And, yeah, we he's one of my better uh, buddies in the game. We we talk pretty often. Well, you yeah, actuaries think, have to hang together, right? Exactly. There's, n- there's not many. Um, <laughs> we have a little uh, subcommittee at the winter meeting. Right, right, right. Year. Um, yeah, so he uh, – or, yeah, I, uh, I was doing that for maybe th- uh, three or four years up in Chicago, and then um, – kind of slowly but surely had heard about things uh, at, you know, the winter meetings job fair, that there were ways that you could put your resumes out and that sort of thing, um, and knew a couple of people who knew people. So I went to that one year, and I guess I had three or four internships in the minor leagues. I worked in the New York Penn League one year in the Cardinals organization, um, and then I was one of the Florida Ops assistants for the Red Sox. So that was doing everything, you know, spring training, Gulf Coast League, uh, instructional league, just kind of helping the guy down there run the business side of that. Uh-huh. Uh, the next year I went to the Brewers and did a lot of video scouting. Um, you know, now it's all automated, but back then we, we charted the games off the of DVD right. and logged it into the system. Um, and I got here, I was going to do a lot of the same stuff. I started uh, doing a lot of the, the video and some statistical work here, um, and that was right one or two years after uh, Castellini and the new ownership group uh, took over here. And... Dick Williams, who's now our president, and then Bob Miller, who was our assistant GM, and he works for the Nationals now. Uh, they were really revamping the kind of financial side of the baseball ops department, and I got heavily involved in that. And that's kind of when I transitioned from doing more of the video, advanced scouting work, into the front office. Um, so early on, I did a lot of the financial work on the baseball side, budgets and everything. Um, and slowly but surely, that kind of transitioned into uh, – you know, sort of half and half statistical work as well, and so that's kind of that's kind of the way that I got got over and got up working full time in the front office here. All right, and can you tell us about your portfolio now because it involves much more than just analytics. I mean, you're doing some things that we talk about with various sports around the world over the years. So strength and conditioning departments. You've also been involved. You know, we also hear about teams. They seem to be investing a lot in their off-season facilities in various mm-hmm. places. That seems like a new way to get an edge, and you're involved in some of that. So you've got an interesting portfolio. What all are you involved with with the Reds? Yeah, um, you know, it's it's definitely been over the years, kind of just doing doing everything that was needed at that time. But um, some of the things you mentioned, um, we've in the past, I guess, five or six years. You know, we've gotten really well more than that now. You know, it's, it's been a longer than that. But uh, you know, we've gotten great support from ownership being able to invest money into the non-player types of aspects and so we've renovated our dominican republic academy we also moved from florida to arizona and built a new facility that we share with the indians out in arizona and Mm -hmm. um it was really dick williams and i were were both involved not in so much the design because you know we're not architects obviously but in in the planning talking to all the different departments whether it's the minor league trainers um you know, the, the weight room, the upstairs, the classrooms, the IT with our 
you know, video and all those capabilities. And so really planning that and putting the, the budgets together and making the finances work on those facilities. So that mm-hmm. was that was really interesting, you know, kind of different, mm-hmm. different work. Um, one of the other things you mentioned, yeah, I, I sort of help uh, really just with the communication and being a liaison between our medical staff, our strength and conditioning staff, our athletic trainers, um, really trying to keep things moving forward and, and organized on, on that set of things as it relates to upstairs in the front office as well. Well, can you tell us a little bit more, but that's a, that's an underappreciated feature of a professional sports team, I think. And I don't quite understand how it's organized typically in baseball In football. There's this strange tension and everyone knows it's kind of inefficient that the strength and conditioning guys are separate from the training folks. Usually strength and conditioning in football is under the coach and the trainers are under the personnel folks. Mm-hmm. And you've got, it's just a weird way to organize things. It's just a uh, just a uh, you know, a feature of the days gone by. Uh, if, if so, you'd kind of want all those things working together and player development kind of under one head. How is it set up in baseball? And so, why is it important that you play this kind of communication role? Yeah, good question. I I didn't know that at all about about the NFL, to be honest with you. But um, yeah, we uh, you know on the major league side, I mean, our our strength. Our, our head of strength and conditioning and our head trainer, I mean, they talk every day. Their offices are right next to each other. So, you know, I think it, it, it's pretty streamlined and it works pretty well. I mean, obviously you've got a gray area between, you know, if a guy's coming back from injury, if he's kind of able to play but in a recovery mode. And so there's constant communication there. And then, you know, one of the differences we have between baseball and football is we do have such a deep minor league system. Um, so it's really the same thing paralleled on the other side. Um, you know, we have – a director of athletic training um, along with a kind of director of rehab and then a medical administrator and also a head strength coach on the minor league side. Um, and then at each affiliate, you know, AAA, AA down to rookie ball, you've got a, a trainer and a strength coach on the ground there. And so it, it's a pretty big pyramid org chart that kind of flows up. And then, you know, that that all really works together with the goal being – keep guys healthy, um, you know, promote rest and recovery. You're really trying to keep guys on the field and keep them as productive as possible just because it's such a long season and it's really such a grind. Right, right, right. This is Wharton Moneyball. We're talking to Sam Grossman. Sam is the assistant general manager and head of analytics at the Cincinnati Reds. He's been there for about 12 seasons after working, interestingly, as an actuary before he made this change. He is His background, he's a, he's a Northwestern grad. 2001 grad of Northwestern, BA in mathematics, but he's picked up far more than just an analytics portfolio here with the Reds. He's got strength and conditioning communication responsibilities. He's helped build the new facilities down in Arizona. Um, terrifically interesting set of things you're working on there, Sam. Tell us, you know, one of the big distinctions in baseball that most people are aware of is the difference in payroll. So it's difficult for smaller market teams like yourselves, like the Indians who you share a facility with in Arizona, to compete with you know, the Dodgers and the Yankees who are raiding the Oreos, you know, roster right now. But you can also differentiate, I suspect, teams along their sophistication and the kind of stuff that you're doing. How progressive they are, yeah, really. How, exactly, how progressive. And I mean, that's my impression. Of course, that's the way it's been in days gone by. Maybe, maybe the league has gotten so sophisticated that everybody's progressive, but maybe not. I'm curious how you see, we know Cincinnati is a smaller market team, so you've got a disadvantage there. 
Where do you see the red sitting in terms of sophistication and progressiveness on analytics and decision making and sports science relative to the rest of the of Major League Baseball? No, definitely. I mean, that's something we're we're constantly thinking about, and because, like you said, it's not a level playing field. So, you know, if if we make decisions as good as the Yankees or Dodgers, we're at a disadvantage because then they can also just spend more money than right. us. And so, you know, like I was talking about ownership investing in in our facilities earlier, um, they've definitely made a really strong investment in like you said, our, our analytics, our sports science, allowing us to grow those departments. You know, we, uh, I can't say that we're the team that has the most analytics staff or the biggest one, um, but we've, we've definitely added since I've been here um, and, and are continually growing and continuing. Uh, you know, they ask us to challenge them to, to add more, um, but we do. We have, you know, it, it sort of breaks down into three departments. I guess you'd call it like the sabermetric, the true baseball analytics side. Then we've got all of the data systems that are coming in from, like nowadays, StatCast and TrackMan and the third-party tracking systems, and then the sports science, which kind of tries to <clears throat> stay on the forefront of, of what's out there new. So, you know, I we're, we're definitely cognizant of trying to be on top of what other teams are doing. I mean, it probably the things that are the newest sophistication things are things that we think we're doing that no one knows about. I'm sure other teams are trying to do things that, that they're the first two that they're going to get an edge on. And so it's really just trying to get that edge. You know, maybe five or six years ago, it was something like like catcher's framing. Um, you know, the right. big one now is, is – it's funny. I was talking about it earlier. But, again, you know, if, if you can do a better job than everyone else, keeping guys healthy, keeping guys playing at their peak, you know, and not missing time and getting back on the field quicker – I think that's where the big advantages are yeah. these days. That you know, it's amazing you say that. We talked to Paul Anacone earlier on the show just this morning. He's a tennis coach. He works mm-hmm. with you know the Federers and Sampras's of the world. And we were you saw me how different it is now versus when he was playing on exactly that dimension. Like that's the biggest difference in tennis is people understand the importance of rest and injury prevention and recovery and all that kind of thing. I thought they'd just eat bananas. <laughs> That's about my level of understanding of tennis. That's exactly – you're with me, Sam. Appreciate that. So, Sam, yeah. this Sam, this is Eric Bradlow. I wanted to ask you a quick question. So if I wasn't in your shoes, if I was just – I'm a statistician. If I was just a statistician looking at the situation the Reds are in, do the Reds and teams that are in kind of mid-market teams think the following way? We're in a division with the Cubs. The Cubs are, at least right now, a very good team. Obviously, the Pirates are on a hot streak now. We have to play a high-variance game. In other words, we have to take risks if we ever want to overtake these teams. As a mathematician, do you ever say to yourself, look, we have to take – our mean might drop, but on the other hand, we have to play a high-variance game. How does that play into your thinking, both when you're making trades, evaluating players, to sometimes you have to just take risky chances that other teams wouldn't? Because otherwise, I hate to say it, 200 million defeats 80 million. It just does. How do you think about that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I, I definitely think if you take a step back and look at it on kind of a 5- to 10-year window, you'd see all the small market teams are doing that. You know, the 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 A's or the Indians or us, we, we just can't it, – it hurts, but you're just going to have those years where it looks like a teardown, you know, and that's where you're getting kind of the the up-down, the 92 wins, and then you're winning 68 two years later. Um, in in the micro on the short term, I think there's some of each. You know, I mean, if if it's if it's a big 
trade that we make, I think we're trying to maximize the expected value of that trade. You know, I don't think that's a, p- a place where, yeah, I mean, you might shoot big on one guy, but not on another. Um, but I do think on the margins, that's true. You know, I'm not saying we've made every move that, that's been perfect because we haven't, but, you know, claiming a guy like Jeanette, you know, that was one where it was low risk with a little bit of high reward. And I mean, no one could have thought it worked out as well as it did, but um, it's a lot of that just continuing to, to cycle through every time you have a shot on something, you take it, you know, and I think it maybe it's not as much playing the high variance game uh, as a guiding principle, but every time you have an opportunity to, I think we have to look hard at doing that, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and I I think you probably indirectly play the high variance game just because, you know, players that are very consistently good cost more money, right? Those are the players that you get the giant contracts because they've got this sort of proven, you know, history of always being at the top of their game. And the, the, those really costly players are less available to the mid-market teams than they are to the Yankees and Dodgers uh, of the world. And so, you know, by by going with, like, you know, slightly less expensive players, part of what you're, is built into that slightly less expensive is a little bit more of a variance in their performance, a little bit less certainty about how good they're going to be. Mm-hmm. So I think indirectly you guys are, you know, almost kind of pushed to play a high-variance game because you're not able to sign sort of the, I guess, the Giancarlo Stantons, or I, I guess he's not a great example of a low-variance player, but, you know, the the, the really good players of the universe. No, it, that, that's a good, that's a really good point. You know, the example for us is, you know, we we love Zach Cozart. He was with us for six, seven years. Um, ultimately, he became a free agent, and there was really nothing we could do relative to putting our team together, and so we ended up transitioning Peraza, who's had a really good year this year. Um you know, and other things, you know, like when our free agent starters were coming up, like Mike Leake, Johnny Cueto, all those guys, you either have to trade them or let them go, and that's where the variance comes in. Yeah. You know, you, you bring in guys that, uh, you know, you think are young guys, you have a lot of confidence in them. They're going to be good eventually, and there, there's variance there especially. So Sam, I want to ask you a question that that um, I don't mean I don't mean to take us into territory that's too uncomfortable, but I, I always wonder about this with with baseball. It's such a long season. Whenever you're not having a great season, what do you what what happens around the the clubhouse and what happens in your day to day work? And the especially with the Reds, it's a proud franchise and with a great history. And um, it just can you give us a sense of how you how you make it through a July when you're sitting where you are in the standings? Um. No, that's that's also a good question. I mean, early early this year was tough. You know, I think we thought we were going to get off to a better start than we did. Um, but you know, honestly, what the the number one thing that helps the most is that the draft is in June, and so if, uh, if you need to turn your focus away okay. from the big league team and you just can't take it anymore, um, right. you know, the draft is a really interesting time. Um, the other thing is we've got so many minor leagues. You know, you every every night you're checking those box scores as well. Right. Um, and you know, just and there's, real, there's real quickly, Sam, on on the on the minor league side, is it more about player performance and team performance? There, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's more more than fifty fifty players over team. Okay. Um, you know, but we uh, we 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 don't just punt the team. I mean, you know, you want guys. The, the good thing is in the minors, a lot of those leagues have two halves still. Um, so even as early as 
as May and June. You know, if, if you have a good team in the minors, they're competing for a playoff spot. Um, you know, they're playing in higher pressure games. I okay. think those types of things are important okay. as well. Um, you know, and towards the end of the year, I, I think it, it's always obviously better to have a team that's kind of in it. Um, you know, in the dog days, even though the minor league season ends early, once you get to August and, and early September, um, you know, you want those teams engaged so guys are still playing hard, they're coming in early, they're, they're getting right. their work in. Uh, that, that team aspect is definitely important as well. Mm-hmm. Sam, this is Eric Bradley. I just had a quick question about the types of, without specific models, the types of analytics you guys are doing. So let's imagine at the lower end, you talked actually about your three areas, sabermetrics, data systems, sports science. At the lowest end, one could say, we track metric, we compute a bunch of metrics and we track it over time. I'm sure you do that, but that's fine too. Another mm-hmm. could be, well, we run fairly sophisticated regression models. At the top end, it could be and, we and run neural really, nets, machine learning, yeah, random yeah. forests. Could you give us a sense of where the Reds, and not just the Reds, but where baseball is right now on level of sophistication? Yeah. An- analytic I, sophistication. I, I, yeah, analytic sophistication. Definitely. Um, I, I think you, you hit on everything you hit on is happening you know both both with us and across the game and it, mm-hmm. it just depends on um what what aspect you're looking at i mean you know you you can go on like fan graphs or, or baseball prospectus and you know they've got i'll call them i guess traditional player projection and valuation models that still have a lot of value and are still existing um i think when you're trying to find the edges you know what where, what's something in the data that that we're not seeing that a traditional regression model isn't going to show you. Um, you know, I think that's where you get the edge, and I'm, I'm sure the majority of the teams are doing that. And so, you know, that's that's been a big push as well is uh, trying to find advantages in in personnel that have expertise in those areas that you touched on that are more advanced and you know, continuing to push the envelope there as well. Can, can I ask some more, more generally about that personnel evaluation, of course, for, for for all professional teams, but maybe especially for baseball? The draft plays such a big role. How happy are you guys with the way you're running your draft right now and the inputs and the, the way it all comes together and the decision-making? I mean, that's such a big undertaking and so important. Yeah, and, you know, we've been in a backwards way fortunate that we've been able to pick high the past couple of years. But, um, you know, we we've been pretty pleased with, the halls we've gotten the past couple of years. And again, you know, it's because you're talking on a three to six year time frame, it's tough to know until 2024, whether you had a good draft this year or right. whatever. But um, no, I mean, we, we really try to take a balanced approach where we're, we're using our network of scouts. Um, we've upped our video capabilities on the amateur side. We, we definitely look at the statistical side, um, do a lot of heavy lifting on, the medical side, try to get, you know, look into players' makeup, you know, how they perform uh, on and off the field, that sort of thing. And so, Sam, Sam well real quickly, rounded. how do you, I can, that sounds comprehensive. I would think one of the biggest challenges is how do you bring that thing together? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of the role of the, the scouting department and the scouting director. So, you know, leading up, it really starts in, in the fall where you've got your area scouts who, who cover you know, an area of college and high school players. They're going and watching fall practices and, you know, just really taking the time from the fall through January and then when the games start in late February or whatever it is, um, it kind of all just funnels up to your draft meetings, you know, a week or two weeks before the draft. Um, 
And I, I guess I don't have a specific answer on that, but I mean, that's really the goal <laughs> well, this of, is, of it, that department. It, 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 but it's a challenge across – it's not just baseball, right? Because we're, we're forever having to blend kind of what do the analytics say versus – what do our eyes say or what do our traditional experts say? And, you know, I asked Howie Roseman this question a few years ago before they won the Super Bowl. And he said something, you know, a little glib, but maybe true, which is I just wait until they all point in the same direction. And it, you probably don't have the, you know, the the luxury of, of only making decisions when they all point in the same direction. But I think as we get more and more signals and as that we get more and more technologies and inputs from sports science, the bigger question is how do we integrate these things? And if you're just asking, and I, I'm not saying this about your you know, head of personnel, but you're asking a guy to do it or a room full of guys to do it, um, I'm, I'm going to guess that's not optimal, but I don't have an alternative. Yeah, no, that's, uh, you know, I, I agree. You know, I think that aspect of it is, is definitely always continuing to evolve and to become more sophisticated as well. Um, you know, and like you said, I think our, our first rounder, it almost always is when everything's pointing in right. in the same direction. Right. But that's the difference between the NBA draft, which is two rounds, and other than a <laughs> yeah. few European guys, you know, you've, you've watched everyone on ESPN right. every game of the year. Right. Um, by the time we were picking in the third round, you know, that's, that's the 100th best player in the country. Well, much less the 27th, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, guys come – there, there's no opting into the MLB draft either. You know, it's basically every college and high school player that's eligible. Right. And so it, it is just a massive set of players as well. And that's kind of what makes it interesting. Definitely. So, Sam, this is Sarah Prado again. How do you, in the analytics department, how do you get graded? For example, if we were a firm and we were trying to predict sales, we could measure, we could create a set of predictions and see how much we sell, and we could compute like the average error that we're making in our forecasts. How does the analytics department get graded, and how do you use kind of, I'll call it, errors in models to kind of make the models even better? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I think a lot of it is through self auditing. You know, we we've, we've we've set up some procedures now where. We're, we're trying to constantly, periodically go back and back check on what everything's doing. And we, we know areas that we can make things better as we get new data sets, um, as, you know, reading public materials, you know, something that, that seems to make intuitive sense um, kind of takes hold. So we, I, I can't say that there's, you know, a formal scoring system or anything where, like you said, uh, you know, I'm sure it's easier on like the corporate sales side or something where you hit your goals or you don't. Um, it's definitely a softer uh, evaluation period. At the end of the day, over the long term, you know our job is to put a winning team on the field. So it's gonna uh, it's gonna reveal itself sooner or later. Um, but you know, on a year to year basis, I think a lot of it falls back on us to to ensure that we're doing enough of a self-evaluation on ourselves. So, Sam, Sam, I like to ask this question of everyone that actually has to use analytics in practice. Mm -hmm. If I could give you one of the following three advantages or improvement areas, which would it be? You can have better data than you have now. You can have better math or models than you have now. Or you can have, I'll call it, a better organizational structure or within process, process, process within the Reds organization to bring that information to actual business intelligence and use. Which of the three areas, whether you want to talk about the Reds or baseball more generally, would you rather have better data, better math, or better processes? Um, well, I would say I, 
I would almost certainly not choose the first one, um, mm-hmm. just because there's so much good data and it's always coming out. There's always something new coming out. Like I said, whether it's the Stackhouse data, whether there's something you know based off a of video, or I don't even know what's going to be next. Um, you know, I I feel like that's part of the cat and mouse game as well. You know, not only are other teams trying everything to get ahead, but we're also staying up with what data's out there. So. I think it's a tough call between the second and the third one that you laid out. And I kind of think they go hand in hand. You know, I I don't think we would want to get ahead of ourselves and be creating things that, that we don't understand, that we can't oh, interesting. easily promote and, uh, you know, advocate for to the rest of the department. So, you know, I, I guess I, I I might take the simpler answer if I had to pick one, that, you know, if you had perfect communication and you knew that, that everything you were trying to promote – was in lockstep with all the rest of the departments. I mean, I think you'd you'd probably get the quickest gains from that. Um, but you know, the other the the perfect mathematical modeling, or however you want to call it, that uh, I can't say that that has no importance. Um, it's an interesting question. No, it, I, I guess I'd have to go with the kind of the more communication human side of it. I, I like your simple answer, not least because it's the most difficult to say on air about an organization, but I think it's also true. I mean, what what good is the best data in the world or the best analytics in the world if it's not translated to the decision-making table at the end? I mean, it, it, the last mile is everything. In, in, yeah. I mean, um, but but the, what, one, one, one place I'm curious to hear a little bit more from you about on the data side is on player makeup. That feels like you know, still kind of a almost witchcraft on an, on a very important issue. Like how, how trying to ascertain whether a guy is going to continue to develop, work hard, you know, play through difficult times, play through successful times. I know that clubs in you know baseball, football, basketball, everyone struggles with that, and it's a place where it seems to me data is still pretty impoverished. Yeah, um, I, I I probably won't get into the full details of what people around the game are trying to do or what we're trying to do. But, you know, I think a lot of it still comes down to having, you know, a, a network of, yeah. of scouts out there, um, you know, figuring out maybe who knew someone in the past and that sort of thing. Um, you know, you can never lose that, that human aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in in terms of the data, there, there's definitely things that I know other, you know, that you've seen some public studies on it. Um, we're trying, other teams are trying. And so I think it's probably in, more the infancy stages of bringing that into the data realm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, it, it, it's definitely happening, and I'm sure sooner rather than later there, there'll be some breakthrough on it. But, um, no, that is one of, you know, the, I feel like when I started here, it, it was more I was focused on, hey, we project this guy to have a 360 on base. Um, but, there, you know, you learn over time that it really is important how is a guy going to, react to changes over time or right. you know interact in certain ways that you weren't thinking about coming into it like do you do you sort of uh foresee any time in the near future where you know suddenly a new source of data is actually everybody's you know every prospective player's twitter history and you form some kind of mathematical model for their makeup out of that um that's definitely a i i'm not going to say no to anything you know? <laughs> um, right I, i'm i'm sure there are things that that you can can glean from that um the, the funny thing is, you know, we talk about this a lot. The term makeup, it really is vague, even mm-hmm. though it's thrown around a lot, that it almost doesn't mean if you're a good or a bad person or 
you work hard off the field or not. It, it's it's kind of this nebulous concept um, of, you know, are you going to be a good teammate when you're there? Are you going to help the club? And I'm not saying that we want to go out and get bad people or anything like that. But, um, you know, you could you could have someone where they might have, quote, Twitter flaws, but when they're on the field, they're right. helping your team win. And so that it's never an easy answer. In, in that regard. So, Sam, uh, Kate asked you a lot about your past history and career. What does the future hold? Is there a day where a general manager, like, could you, be, could maybe it's already happened, could someone go from analytics to be the GM of a team? Or, I, you don't have to necessarily talk just about you, but is, or do you have to, like, move to a different industry if you want to kind of move up? How, how do you think that works in the future of baseball? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I'm honestly not all that focused on it. I mean, I, I, I love what I'm doing here. Um, we're, you know, busy every single day and it's fun pretty much every day. So for myself, uh, I try not to, to worry too much about things like that. Um, but there's been, there's definitely been people that have, have moved up that direction. Um, you know, guys like, um, like Farhan, for example. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, David Stearns, I don't know if he was purely on, on the analytics side, but, um, it, it's almost like it doesn't matter as much anymore. You know, we don't. Interesting. Our our front office, it's it's not like we have a different wing of analytics, and I don't think anyone does it that way. So, you know, I I don't think people really get put in those buckets as much as they used to. I that's, mean, it, it says it, a lot it, about baseball, Sam, because it's that's not the case in football or soccer, for example. Yeah. Um, no, that's interesting to hear, and I, I'm not saying that people don't approach things differently, but. You know, like in spring training, for example, a lot of us are, are just sitting together. You know, some people have offices. Some people are out in the bullpen area together. But, you know, that's a really good time for kind of everyone to right. to mingle and, and just challenge each other and, and talk about various things. Yeah. Right, right, right. Listen, Sam, we'll let you go. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us this morning. We wish you the best with the work and the best with the Reds. Thanks. Anytime. You bet. That was Sam Grossman, assistant GM and head of analytics at the Cincinnati Reds. He's been there for 12 seasons. He's got an interesting and diverse portfolio, including not only analytics, but some communication responsibilities around strength and conditioning, helping build their new facilities in Arizona and their Dominican Academy. Sam Grossman. Appreciate that. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. We are 90 minutes into our show today. Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Audie was with us for the first hour. He's been teaching for the last 30 minutes. You can join the conversation. We wish you would. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Add us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle up there, at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. Good way to stay on top of the sports analytics world, but you can also send us questions, send us suggestions for our over-unders, which we'll run into here in a few minutes. Just off the phone with Sam Grossman. That was a fun conversation. Enjoyed hearing about, you know, I do wonder what those guys do when they're sitting last place in their division halfway through the season. But he sounds up. They're doing things. They're worried about their minor league players. They're 
they're still, you know, pushing along. And it's a great franchise. They're trying to do the right things. I think you asked the magic question, which is the same question we asked Michael Fishman of the Yankees last week, which is, how do you combine information sources? Like, how do you take whether it's – and that's the, that's the magic – to me, actually, that's the greatest argument for the use of mathematical models. Models do help you combine information sources. And I, I agree with uh, Sam's answer. I think that's the biggest challenge. How much weight do you put on scouting? How much do you put on past performance, just, just et cetera? A no, just a methodological note. The chief reason that models are helpful in integrating those things is that they will integrate them the same regardless of which player it is, what time of day it Correct. is, what day of the year it is. They're going to be consistent in a way that humans And it gives you a framework where you have to be kind of more explicit about the assumptions you make right. with and, balancing and not those just, different that's, information that's right. And not just sources. that, but something you talk about with the Massey Peabody system all the time. If your goal is one of prediction and you use out-of-sample validation, so data not used to fit the model, you can actually choose the weight to put on each source to optimize your out-of-sample forecast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the the data tells you how much weight to put on each source mm-hmm. and when you use it when out of sample prediction is your metric to do it it seems coherent to me it, right. it's it's a very reasonable way to do it well i'll tell you something tough to forecast that's professional golf especially perhaps in scotland and this past weekend we had as far as i can remember the best leaderboard on the back nine of a sunday it was amazing I've ever seen and for a couple different reasons. One is how many guys were with a, a stroke or two of contention. At one point, there was a six-way tie for first. Correct. And we're talking on the back nine. Yeah, right. And then the names of the guys that were up there. So amazingly, Tiger Woods was in the hunt. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Rory McIlroy made a push there at the end. Justin Rose, who made the cut on the number on Friday, was the leader of the clubhouse at one point. I mean, it was it was, it was. And Jordan Spieth, forget about Jordan yes, Spieth, yeah. was the, the number one or much, two player in the world. And, two, the, and then there are like five of the guys floating around. So now, given the way it's set up. You haven't mentioned up, the winner yet. I know. Given the way it's set up, Molinari was, for many people, a disappointment. I always feel bad whenever someone like Molinari wins because it's almost like we hold it against him just because we don't know him that well. It's just purely a familiarity thing for most people. But one of the nice things here is the first Italian um, major in decades. I Ever. Mean, was it ever? Ever. Ever? So yeah, the, la- Medi- the last, the closest person Tiger Woods defeated him was Constantino Roca. Ah, uh, Roca. Okay. Uh, who Tiger Woods defeated in a play. Ever? First ever? That's yeah, first ever. There's All never right. been an Italian that well, had won a major. He's been having a good few days back home, I suspect, huh? Being but, celebrated. But by the way, you say that people don't know Molinari, which is true, but it gets to, you know, there are periods in golf where people get, and I'm not talking momentum now, I'm talking about hot and cold. So just so you know, in his last five tournaments, mm. Molinari has three wins in two seconds. Yeah. So let's that just... That is insane. It's insane. So actually, he wasn't... He shouldn't have been as dark horse as he was, conditional yeah. on him getting to Sunday and being in contention because the guy was red hot. I yeah. mean, he... I'm not saying momentum. He's yeah. in a period where he's playing extraordinarily well. And yeah. then the question is, is his best game as good enough to win? That's the question. But it wasn't like he was... All to, oh, my God. The guy was like... Barely making cuts. Yeah. No. Yeah. The guy was playing extraordinarily well. That's right. That's right. And we know from talking to people who model golf. That, there's a flat that, maximum. No, no. The, well, that's, I mean, these guys are really close. It's right. just absurd. And there's a lot of variation within player variation. And so it, a, little, a little bit of hotness from a guy is going to, is, is, could provide some separation. But we do know that there is, it's not 
it's not momentum because it's not because he played well last week. He's going to play right. better. It's more like regime shift. He's Correct. playing he's well playing right well. now. He's playing and well right now. There are right these now. big differences within a golfer's career. Bolinari seems to be on. And you know the guys just couldn't. It's like everyone else just fell back. And he not only held his ground, but he actually gained a couple strokes in the last few holes. Never bo- didn't hit a bogey in the last two rounds. And if you told most people at Carnoustie, yeah. one of the most difficult courses there is, especially the last round in the wind, in, sa- in the entire no. weekend, not Incre- one bogey. No, incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, Spieth kind of spit the bed. He's He shot five over on the last round. Spieth was the, the last group. So tied for the lead, last group. And among the you know top ten golfers at least, maybe much deeper, he had the worst final round. Well, not just that, but there was also the guy he was playing with, Xander Schofle, who's been playing extraordinarily well, including in the majors recently. Another one of these 24-year-olds that no one's ever heard of. I mean, you've heard of Spieth, who's 24. You've probably heard of Justin Thomas, who's 24, major winner. Most people haven't heard of Schofle. He was also at 9-under. So let's be clear. If either one of them had shot even par, they win by one or two strokes. Oh, yeah. So they yeah. were – there was a three – there was yeah. another guy at 7-under. was Kevin Kisner. But they were – Molinari started the day at six under. He was three strokes back of two players and one stroke back of another. So they all backed up, and he obviously gained two strokes on the mm-hmm. field. Mm-hmm. But the mm-hmm. thing that amazed me, the thing that analysis I then did as a result of this, I started to wonder. So, you know, I got all excited. The 11th hole on Sunday, Tiger Woods is at seven under. There's a bunch of guys at six. Tiger Woods so – Seven was the lead at that moment. Yeah. Tiger in, was, was in the lead. He was in the lead at seven under on the 11th hole. And I started to think to myself, this could be it. I mean, seven <laughs> holes to go. If he plays at an even par, turned out that wouldn't have been enough. But you don't know. Maybe if he, he was playing with Molinari, let's yeah. be clear. Not only did Molinari win, let's give the man credit. He was playing with Tiger Woods. So that, I mean, if you want to add to the lore of what Molinari did, forget the first Italian player. You're saying because of the attention and crowds and of stuff? Of course. Okay. But just so you know, by the way, this is the fourth time he's played with Tiger Woods. The other three have been in the Ryder Cup, which is also high pressure. So it's not like this guy doesn't know big game golf. I mean, he, How old is he, by the way? Molinari's 36, I believe, 35 or 36. So I love he's our online real-time Wikipedia. But I'm saying I watched a lot of the golf. Yeah. But what made me start to think is, so how good is Tiger at closing? Because, you know, in Jordan Spieth's closing comments, he made a comment. You know, they were asking him how upset he was on losing. And, of course, he said he was upset. He said, but even Jack Nicklaus. So I, I don't know if you guys know the statistic. I'll give it to you now. He won 18 majors. We all know right. that. That's the but magic number in golf. he finished second some. How many, do you know how like many times? 15 or more, something more, like that? More no, times. it's more. It's more 19. Oh, wow. It's 19. So then I started to wonder, like, if I compare Nicholas and Woods and other golfers, I, I, I understand I cherry-picked the number. I said, if they're in the top 10, now why not top 11, why not top 12? I chose top 10. Conditional on them finishing in the top 10, what fraction of time do they win the tournament? Okay. I chose top 10, okay? Jack Nicholas, most considered the greatest golfer of all time. And this is just majors I looked at. I, I just looked at majors. Okay. Jack Nicholas was in the top 10 73 times in the majors. <laughs> That's insane, by the way. Right. And he won 18, which makes him just less than 25%. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Tiger Woods has been in the top 10 in majors 39 times and has won 14, which is 36%. Wow. Now, you can do any type of paired comparison yeah, test you want. It's statistically, yeah. it's statistically greater. Um, matter of fact, a simple way to do it is if you doubled the number of majors that Tiger made it to the top 10, 
he'd be at 25 majors at or 26 at the same rate that Nicholas played if he had made the same number of yeah. top tens. So clearly, when Tiger Woods is in the top ten, and by the way, everyone the, else is well below Nicholas and Woods. But Eric, you're acting as if Tiger there is a solitary singular Tiger Woods, and that's clearly not the case. So there was the Tiger Woods who was one in four to win any major he played. Correct. And there is the 2018 Tiger Woods. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no, no. So that's, well, you could say the same thing about Nicholas. I mean, people forget um, when Nicholas won the Masters in 86, he hadn't won a major in six years. His last major was the U.S. Open in 1980 prior to the Masters in 86. Um, He was 40 when he won his Mm -hmm. last major in 1980. And then miraculously, he shoots 30 on the back nine at the Masters and wins. So he, there was, people thought Nicholas was done. The magic number was going to be 17. Yeah. Especially in those days. This wasn't the days where the Phil Mickelsons and the uh, Bernard Longer, by the way, my hero. He made the cut, right? No, he made the cut. He finished under par. <laughs> he, he, at age 60, he finished under par at the Masters, uh, at the British Open. Fabulous. So it's not those days anymore. Most people thought Nicholas was done at 40. Yeah. And he won one more. So with Tiger Woods, I was, you know, on the one hand, this is the, this is the way you know, lots of articles have been written about this since Sunday. On the one hand, it shows Tiger's back. He can win a major. On the other hand, eventually... Maybe it's a Roger Federer situation. Remember, Federer went five years without winning a major until 2016-17 when he started winning them again. He was stuck, stuck at 16 majors. He's now at 20. Which one's going to count more? The battle scars of getting close and not winning or Tiger now believing he's in the hunt? That's a good question. Is there any sport where the mental game plays a bigger role than golf? It's like a back nine on a major. I don't think so. No. Because you're so I- – it's all on you. You're so isolated. Your performance is completely uncorrelated with anybody else's. <laughs> it's all on you. And there's no automatic responses. You have to no. put everything in motion. There's you know a zillion different physical movements you have to make over a few you seconds. You hear, like, across the course some cheer, and you're like, <laughs> What's what, what just What's happened, you know? And, oh, man, it's got to be something. I mean, I think it's not something. even close. And it's not just the back nine at a major, but it's also these ruts that people get into, sometimes for years. But, like, where's Spieth? Where's Spieth's head? Is he, has yeah. it ever been right? Now, he had a hell of a well, run last year at the Open. But has he, has and he it, won, right? He won the British Open last year. But he's really year. struggled since that collapse at the Masters a few years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Tiger Woods, you just named the struggle that Tiger Woods has. Does he take solace from having been competitive for the first time in, you know, whatever, five years? Or is it like, yeah, but I still didn't get it done. You know, he's like, there's that still that hasn't quite broken the ice yet. I think he takes solace in that he was in there and he was he was winning the British Open with seven holes to go. It was one hole that did him in was the 11th hole. He hit a bad shot. Then tried to go for he tried to get greedy. Yeah, this is I heard he this. was in. Let me just explain the situation. He's sitting next to the green. He went for a flop shot, like it had hit just over the bunker, and he hit it next to the bunker, so it rolled basically back to his feet. He could have hit it onto the green, been ten feet away, Eric, and that, gone for the. But that this, was two times in a row out of the, the two holes playing his, in a row. No, playing his second shot off eleven, he should have played more conservatively, and so it's like he hasn't adjusted his aspirations to his current state. That. I mm-hmm. thought the same thing at the time. This seemed like the old Tiger Woods who yeah. felt like he could get out of any situation. Yeah. Okay, fellas, I want to drop a little bit of knowledge on you because Matt dropped it on us in the note here. I just could not be happier to notice that there are there are football numbers in the rundown today. And so we got to at least broach them. I mean, this is the first football numbers we've seen in six months. Let's talk about them. So we've, what we have is some projected rankings or some preseason rankings. I'm going to give you both 
This is NFL or college? We got one of one of each. Let's do a top ten from each. You guys react. I'll give you, I'll give you what you want to talk about first. Well, let me go backwards because you'll spend more time on the NFL side. I'll just use the sporting news top ten because it's one of the ones here. I could do USA Today, but who wants to endorse the USA Today? Sporting news top ten. NFL, I mean, college football. Number ten, Penn State. Number nine, Notre Dame. That's the biggest surprise to me. Notre Dame in the top ten. Number eight, Auburn. People are sleeping on Auburn this year, by the way, just because they're in the SEC West. They're going to give some people a challenge. They've got one of the top quarterbacks, a transfer out of Baylor when Baylor blew up, um, playing down there. Washington, number seven, Washington. Are they finally going to go to the edge with Chris Peterson? He's going to do it eventually. Number six, Wisconsin. They think it's a better even team than last year. They have a tougher schedule. Last year they didn't play anybody. They've got a little bit tougher schedule, but they've got almost a cake walk in the West up there. Oklahoma, God help us. Number four, Ohio State. <laughs> Number three, Georgia. Number two, Clemson. Number one, Alabama. Everyone has them as the top four. The Buckeyes, the Bulldogs, the Tigers, and the Tide. Everybody's top four. So I have two questions for you, Kate, about that list. They all seem like reasonable teams on that list. How much variance do you see between, let's say, if Alabama right now were to play Notre Dame? Are we talking about a two-touchdown-plus spread? Is that how much spread there is between one and nine? It. It's probably not quite that much, but it's getting close. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing, and of course we could run these numbers, but I'm going to guess is uh, Alabama will be plus 28, 29. Uh, Notre Dame might be plus 18. So, so 10 I'm, or 11 I'm gonna guess points. Make it 10. All right, so let's just say at the end of the day, while it's an exciting top 10, do you agree? As we sit here with the prior, before the season starts, there's no more than four or five teams that realistically have a good chance to win the national no, title. No, I think you're making a classic mistake. This is based on our current expectations. Our expectations will be wrong. Our, where these teams but are going to end up. To, you guys but have I mean, always told I, me to put you, a lot of weight on that. priors. Just to counter-argue, I wasn't do. it the same four teams last year? Uh, Oklahoma was in the Final Four, not Ohio State. So okay. Oklahoma, Georgia but, played but, that But semi. it was like four. Uh, Oklahoma was like yeah. four and a half last yeah. year. Right. But this is, this is what you see with preseason. They, they're really closely mapped to the end of season last year. Eric, we'll have some we'll have some sims here in mm-hmm. the next couple of weeks, and what you'll see is the phenomenal variation that's possible, and the relatively small percentage of times that you end up seeing these four teams or four of these five. The so, great, so, the great I mean, thing also about college football is I may have this wrong. I apologize. Aren't Georgia, Auburn, and Alabama all in the SEC? They are. And aren't they all in the same division of the SEC? No, Georgia's, Georgia's in, in the, the opposite East. one. Yeah, Georgia's There's, in the East. Okay. But either way, these teams have, like, we could say Penn State's great, Ohio State's great, Wisconsin's great. Only one of them's coming out of the Big Ten. I mean, at the, maybe, I, mean I doubt two of them are going to make the playoffs, is all I meant. Maybe they will. So the good news is these teams will be playing each other. Mm. That's the other nice thing. <laughs> Some of them. Hopefully just once. Hopefully we don't have to watch Alabama and Georgia play each other twice. Let me give you the ESPN F. PI top 10 for the NFL. So this is Buccaneers? The, oh, sorry sorry Eric. This is their their quant model which we think very highly of, but it's obviously very early preseason. Number 10 Chiefs, number 9 Packers. Rodgers is going to be playing apparently. Falcons only number 8. Jags number 7, Rams number 6, Bikes at 4, Saints, I mean Bikes at 5, Saints at 4. Saints at four. That's uh, everyone's in on that new edge rusher they traded up for. Steelers at three. Oh my gosh, really? Steelers at three. Pats at two, and our hometown Eagles at number one. Interesting. That's a quant, that's a quant model. What do you, how right. do you guys react to that? 
Um, I mean, I, I've been seeing mostly like I guess the non-quan perspective has you know the Pats maybe a little bit like edging out the Eagles mm-hmm. just just because I think the AFC is still the weaker conference in general. So in terms of path to like yeah, right. path in the playoffs, yeah, this I think isn't the projections. Path, these are these are qual- yeah, power rankings. That's right. So so I, I I see nothing really objectionable in there other than I would put the Rams higher and the Saints lower, just kind of okay. based only, on my own and, intuition, and the, but. The, the articles okay. I've been reading again have to do with the divisions in football. So I don't see anybody in the AFC East that's gotten particularly better. Yeah, um, I see. You know, as a Bucks fan, I'm like, damn, we're in the NFC South because I'm thinking the Panthers, Saints, and Falcons. That's the tough. That's division. tough. Yeah. That's it's just tough. tough. It's a quick turnaround. Just a couple of years ago, and, and I mean, the N- I know that was so the week division, but that's the NFC West too, with San Francisco, uh, the Rams, and Seattle. Uh, Seattle, I mean, is. I, yeah, it's, and it's, also uh, the Cardinals. I mean, I understand they're not great, but to just dismiss yeah. the Cardinals, like I agree. Yeah. So that's another challenge. But I agree. The first thing when I was thinking about that list, similar to what I said in college football, is divisions matter. Yeah. You got to win your division, and that's going to be a big challenge for some of those teams. Not the Patriots, though. Okay, fellas, <laughs> hitting the final turn here. We got to take it take it home. It's Warden Moneyballs over under. Lead us, Eric, and we need to, we need to hit him kind of quickly. All right, so quickly, let's go through the two sports we spent a lot of today talking about golf and tennis. Let's start with golf. Over under, uh, Tiger's top ten finish, top five finishes in the majors in the next four years, one point five. So does he make? Does he have in the next sixteen majors? Yeah. Does he have two or more top five finishes? Shane Jensen. I'm taking the over, man. I'm I'm bullish I'm I'm I'll, I'm, I'll, I'm bullish on Tiger. I'll take the over and I, and I hate it. I've been shorting him for a while, but I you know he impressed you this week. He's got a little game left, yeah. and the way people can keep playing late into life these days, I'll take the over. Eric, and to me, the he, over I'll take the over, but the top five worries me. If you had told me top ten, it wouldn't have worried mm-hmm. me as much. But yeah. I know it doesn't seem like a big difference. But either oh, way, we'll it, both it go older. Let's go to the next one. Tennis, thirty nine and a half years old when Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and Murray win their last major. So I'm saying win any of them. Okay. Do any of them win a major at age 40 or greater? <laughs> Do any so of them win Fed, a major at Fed age 40? That is 36. Nadal, 32. Murray and, and Djokovic, Djokovic are, are both 31. 31. No. I'm going under. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to take the under on that, but, you know. But we I, all agree, the only one with a realistic chance is, I mean, Dahl may continue to win the French for 15 more years. Yeah, Djokovic true. and Murray are definitely not winning majors at age 40. I would Federer, guess I guess you could say maybe Wimbledon, maybe. You but know, get some breaks, some I, I'm injuries. Going under. Weak, I think 39 and a half is. I, matter of fact, I think if we made that number 37 and a half, yeah. all of you might say yeah. no. Yeah. Okay. Let's go one last one. Um, let's talk about the NBA and we'll start with the Cavs and their ridiculous. Uh, salary to Kevin Love. I mean, he's not worth 120 million at this point, oh, but whatever. Look at him. It's, it's what he money, got, buddy. Wow. Do the Cavs win more than 26 and a half games this year? So remember, last year I think they won somewhere in the 50s, right? They were in the low 50s. I think last year, 51, 52. LeBron's obviously not on the Cavs anymore. Are they? Who was the 26 wins team last year? I'm not calibrated for wins in the NBA. That's out of the playoffs. That's less. That's a third of your games. It's less. It's a little bit more than a third. Thirty-five percent of your games. This is not a very good team. Yeah, I, I, I'm just guessing. Last year, how many games did the Atlanta Hawks win last year? Yeah, somewhere in that range. Okay. So, what I'm, do you guys think? Over under twenty six and a half for the Cavs. I'll go under. I think <laughs> they were so, when the last time LeBron left, they were 
so awful, no, I'm, so I'm, quickly. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go over it. I don't have a reason for it other than I'm just going to short the narrative. I'm going to short okay. the narrative here. I'm going to short the history and say, nah, let's be a little regressive with this prediction. And I'm going under. What, they're, they're a bad team. Bad team. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Well, listen, fellas, that has been a fun couple of hours. Good to have you in here. Thanks to Daniel Bruno on the board there, helping us out throughout the show, as always, for Matty Dots running the show. It's a little bit of a complicated one for him this morning. Really appreciate his work. Thanks to the listeners out there from Audie Weiner, from Shane Jensen, from Eric Bradlow, and from Cade Massey. Appreciate y'all listening. We'll be back. We will be back next week. We're getting ever closer to football season. One of these days we'll start talking about it in earnest. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports.